This is Red Flag Radio, Revolutionary Socialist Podcast, recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And actually, the topic we're talking about today relates quite a lot to the fact that it's Aboriginal land and the difference in the way that people have treated the land in different social systems and uh, the contrast with Aboriginal land um, that I think you'll start to here in this discussion um, is something quite significant. And um, the way that the land here has been stolen and expropriated and mined and destroyed um, is going to be hopefully one of the things we look back on in a future socialist society and remember and um, think about how that has um, been changed. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast, um, so we talk about politics and history, and today we're actually talking at a more theoretical level, but also relating to the current crisis, I think, um, about something that Marx wrote about in terms of ecology, which is this idea of the metabolic rift. And the guest that I have on the show, somebody who's been doing some research in this area, um, is Sagar Sanyal, who's a former guest on Red Flag Radio um, who was here before to talk about the political situation in India. I'm sure we could talk a lot more about that right now, but that's not what we're talking about today. Um, We're talking about Marx and the metabolic rift and Marx's ecology and some of the lessons we can draw out of that um, in terms of uh, strategy um, for resisting and thinking about how we can actually solve the ecological disaster that's kind of unfolding around us, not just the pandemic, but obviously the climate crisis that we've been um, campaigning about as socialists for a very long time. So if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. And we appreciate all your support there. Okay, let's get into this discussion Um, I think one of the things for me in reading about Marx's ecology, uh, ecological theories and critique and so on, um, is that really it does what Marx does so well, I think, which is to think about the world as a totality and bring together what might be seen as kind of natural phenomena with what are social phenomena and social conditions and social relations to try to understand the world around us. So if we start with Marx when he's developing this um, perspective on ecology and on the um, natural world, if you like, in around the mid-1850s, Sagar, Um, What was kind of happening at that time for Marx? Where was he in his thought? What was happening sort of in the world around him as he started to look at these issues? Well, there's a social context and a natural science context. And Marx and Engels brought these two together, as you say, because they like to think in terms of totalities. 
the specifically capitalist reorganization of agriculture and industry had entrenched itself throughout Western Europe in the first half of the 1800s. And by the time Marx was writing in the 1850s, the effects of all this on the environment were becoming visible. So one of the effects, which was a big talking point in the press, was the decline in soil fertility because of the new capitalist agriculture methods. And another was the accumulation of human excrement around rapidly growing cities like London. So Engels uh, wrote about this in his Conditions of the English Working Class, you know, sewage flowing, flowing down the Thames River and so on. Meanwhile, in natural science, the foundations of soil chemistry were being laid down in the 1840s. Uh, German chemist Justus von Liebig studied soil fertility and recognized the basic role of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium in plant growth. He fit these into the nutrient cycle from soil to plants to humans and other animals that eat the plants and then back to manure and the soil again. And now all this was in a, in a practical sense, it was already understood by, by farmers, right? Because they knew the importance of manuring, but the scientific basis, basis for this was being laid in the 1840s. For people like Liebig, the solution to rectifying the fall in soil fertility was just to make synthetic fertilizers. You know, Now that we know that it's potassium and nitrogen and so on, let's just make it synthetically and add it in. Yeah. And um makes me think about the episode that we recorded uh, with Roxanne about um, food production under capitalism and at the time when basically – uh, the sort of developing agricultural sector in capitalism started to realize that um, just uh, planting the same thing over and over again and depleting the nutrients in the soil meant that they needed to do something about it. And so all these new forms of um, fertilizer were explored, which included things like um, going and finding bird shit on remote islands, this whole guano thing, and then also going and digging up the bones from the Napoleonic Wars, the battlefields, um, and bringing them back to Britain and putting them on the soil to try to um, replenish the nutrients and so on. So this is sort of like the first signs of capitalism, like capitalist production being willing to do anything really in the short term to get that immediate um, profit, that kind of yield that they want, even if they know that in the long term – this is probably going to be bad news uh, for the natural environment. So people sort of think about Marx um, as somebody who really cared about sort of economic questions, um, cared about, you know, maybe cared about human beings, but not really as a person who thought that much about the natural world and so on. So why, what sort of sparked his interest? Why was he so concerned about um, the impact on the natural world? Because really at this point, there weren't that many people who were that concerned. It certainly wasn't an international concern, yeah. Yeah, I think really what's at the heart of it is that Marx and Engels emphasized the role of labor as a site of interplay between human agency on one side and the natu nat natural conditions in which we find ourselves. So right from the start, they're oriented towards understanding how labor changes both the world around us and changes us. So 
they understood history itself as something that's, that happens because of our laboring. And they understand that society as a whole changes over time. So there are some kinds of society way back then, which have a different effect on the environment. And there's a new kind of society in Marx's day, which is changing the environment in a completely different way. And because they're attentive to the role of labor, they are um, attuned to what's happening in uh, the politics and the natural science of their time, which has a bearing on this. So really, yes. how, they, um, how Marx comes to the concept of metabolic rift is it has both a theoretical angle and a historical angle. The historical side, he identifies the key events that lead up to the soil fertility crisis of his time. So the key events are the displacement of peasants from the countryside. In England, it was the enclosure of the commons. And then they were corralled into towns to create the modern proletariat, a population with no means of subsistence of their own. So they were forced to move around to find waged work. And that's the root of the surge in urbanization. And the theoretical aspect, so for, for Marx, the rift is not so much the natural effects of the enclosure and the urbanization or the disruption of the nutrient cycle, although these are part of it. Really, the core of it is a rift in the social relations, the forcible conversion of the peasantry into a proletariat. So that's the cause. And then the downstream effects are what's happening in nature. So what is that social cause fundamentally for him? It's two things. One is the destruction of the peasantry. The peasantry had maintained its livelihood on the land and had some autonomy in how it did this. Um, obviously, its autonomy ended when the feudal lord came and took a bunch of the grain or forced them to work three days a week on the lord's land. But the autonomy that the peasant had was that if they saw that their labor process in the soil was draining it of fertility, they could try to make adjustments, which is really how farmers for thousands of years had figured out through practical experience that you need stuff like crop rotation and manuring and so on. But now that the peasantry was being destroyed, this was getting rid of the feedback mechanism where humans relating to the land could adjust based on the consequences they were having on the land. The other side of it was the creation of the proletariat. So because this is a bunch of people who will do any waged work that earns their boss a profit, there's a new dynamic that enters how social metabolism with nature goes on. So it means that capital can always set up new labor processes that would earn them a profit, even if that labor process is really destructive uh, for the community, even for the workers doing the labor themselves, because they know that somebody is desperate enough for a wage and will do it regardless of how dangerous or destructive it is. So the, the rift, the metabolic rift for Marx is really this core bunch of stuff. The separation of humans from the land, taking away our control over our own labor so that we are compelled to do any labor that makes a profit for the boss and taking away the feedback mechanisms where humans see the effect that their labor is having on the land and can adjust. Mm. So there's in a sense a way that um, 
you know, Marx and Engels recognized from the very beginning of their work that human beings are not some sort of separate thing from nature. So we are nature and we're part of nature. And we've, you know, humans have always, always had a relationship with nature. In fact, it's sort of odd to call it a relationship with rather than just being a part of. Um, and that in some ways, the kind of alienation of our role as workers in the productive process under capitalism connects as well to our alienation from the natural world in that sense of having no um, connection between or even now you'd think people do know the connection between their work and the devastating effect it might be having on the environment, but there's literally nothing you can do about it because you need to work to earn a wage to be able to survive. So again, it's sort of just another one of these added to the list of how capitalism fucks people up is that it detaches us, you know, from the natural world and even forces us to do things that we know are destructive to the natural world. Our across the world. Capitalism is obviously the key link in terms of sort of how Marx understands this rift happening. So if we kind of then think about um, uh, the current ecological crisis, and I think actually it's only been really since the 1980s um, that people have kind of come back to this theory around the metabolic rift. I think it was sort of a part of Marx's work that was a bit lost for a while or maybe under – under discussed potentially, but I guess since the eighties into the nineties and into the two thousands, when more and more people have been concerned about the sort of global international effects on the environment, that this theory has now come back into discussion. So how does it help in terms of explaining um, some of the things that are part of the discussions today? So the Anthropocene, for example, is a term that people are much more familiar with now around the idea that human beings have um, created this fundamental shift in the ecological system that we're in. Um, So does the metabolic rift sort of connect there with the Anthropocene and other discussions that we're having today about the environmental crisis? Yeah, it does have a bearing on it. So proponents of the Anthropocene concept say that a new geological epoch has begun, the Anthropocene, which takes over from the previous epoch, the Holocene, which lasted from the end of the previous ice age about 11,000 years ago. And so far, the tendency is to date the Anthropocene in terms of geologically observable indicators to date it from about the post-World War II era, right? So in terms of when... Uh, visible things show up in the sediment and rock and so on. But scientists are also saying that even though that's when the indicators show up, the the causes of it began earlier. And people tend to talk about the Industrial Revolution. And scientists understand that there's something social that's really the cause of the Anthropocene in that sense. Although the the term is still being firmed up in in the natural sciences. But because there's already this opening towards understanding that there's a social cause of the Anthropocene. This is where Marxists and the concept of metabolic rift can have a lot of purchase. Um, 
So for Marxists, the root social cause of the Anthropocene is the metabolic rift, which began, um, really began capitalism as a whole. So it, partly because it created the proletariat for the first time and because it turned the proletariat to be used for any old purpose, profits, for profits. Um, so think about um, some of the effects that humans are having. So Anthropocene is kind of specific to geologically visible effects, kind of biogeochemical processes being disrupted. But think more generally of how the metabolic rift that's due to capitalism has caused all sorts of environmental damage as capitalists have found newer and newer ways to make profits since Marx's time. So grain could be directly, by, directly eaten by humans, but instead it's sold as feed grain to feed poultry and cattle. It makes no sense from the point of view of feeding the world sustainably, but it's more profitable because poor people who could buy the grain have very little disposable income and the rich people who would buy meat for every meal can buy a lot more of it or designing appliances and devices to wear out after three years instead of you know, lasting 10 or 15 years makes no sense in terms of efficiently using natural resources or reducing waste, but it's more profitable because the number of people who can afford appliances and devices is limited and the people who can afford them can certainly afford to buy them, you know, replace them every couple of years. Or think of ocean trawling instead of using fishing lines vastly more destructive for sea life to the point of seriously undermining entire marine ecosystems, but it's cheaper. Or think of industrial feedlots, something that you discussed in the podcast with Roxanne. So masses of cattle, pigs, poultry are collected together and they end up becoming a breeding ground for infectious disease. They concentrate enormous pools of effluent that can't be absorbed in the surrounding environment and ends up poisoning rivers and so on. It's also a hellish place for farm laborers to work in places like this, but it's cheaper. Uh, or making components of one electronic device in 20 different countries, shipping them back and forth, makes little sense in terms of fuel use, but again, it's cheaper, right? So mm -hmm. in all these ways, uh, the metabolic rift kind of have re has repercussions in today's world and helps us understand why these things are not just happenstance that happen in one industry after another industry. What connects them all together is the underlying economics of it, the underlying tendencies of capitalism. And then with climate change specifically, um, well, we tend to discuss it mostly in terms of changes in temperature or atmospheric concentrations or weather patterns. Sometimes the mainstream discussion goes beyond that and talks about technical aspects of society. So there's an understanding that it's society that's created the problem, but what is it about society? Well, just technical things. The fact that we use one kind of energy rather than a different kind of energy, or that we don't recycle as much. It's kind of technical things that can be fixed. What Marxists add to that is that underlying the technical stuff is the social relations. And really the technical choices that have been made have all been made because of the social relations, because the capitalists direct the labor process and direct it in a way that's not necessarily functional for the community, but simply produces more profit. Mm. And well, I mean, one of the big discussions that's happening now in terms of the COVID-19 
pandemic is sort of that connection between um, viral disease and industrial agriculture and the sort of um, all, all of those issues around um, the exploitation of the natural world, the connection of human beings, uh, the proximity of people's lives um, and even, you know, the impact of COVID-19 in terms of the way that people are forced to live in pretty unhealthy conditions to begin with or, you know, that people have pre-existing health conditions, all of those issues that the food that we eat that's highly processed and full of crap and everything to make more profit <clears throat> kind of doesn't give us a, um, the best chance of fighting viruses as animals, as human animals in this situation. So how do all those things um, in in terms of the current pandemic um also relate to this uh, original kind of concept and theory from Marx. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there's a few broad families of respiratory viruses that can cause diseases in birds as well as various mammals, you know, pigs, horses, cows, humans. And that's always been true. And novel strains that hop from one species to humans are not a new thing. But what has changed, what is new, is that these are happening more frequently in recent decades and often with particularly virulent forms of disease. Um, and here, because it's a more recent thing, we know that there's something in the change in metabolism between society and nature that's really driving it, right? It's not something that's been age old in nature. It's something that's newer. Mm. Um, so first, I mean, epidemics are not just about individual cases of transfer from one animal to one human. So it's about the prevalence of the disease in the non-human animal population in the first place. It's about the increased risk of contagion to humans. And then it's about spreading among humans beyond a locality to other population centers. So with COVID-19 in particular, it seems that it was transmitted to humans through wild meat, bush meat markets, probably from pangolins. The issue isn't necessarily the existence of bush meat markets, right? So some of the uh, somewhat uh, <coughs> xenophobic tropes in the mainstream media have just been pointing mm. to look, you know, Chinese people eat these weird exotic meats. That's not really the problem. The problem is, uh, I mean, bushmeat has been part of human diets of small populations living on the edge of the bush for centuries, and it hasn't been causing outbreaks like this. The problem is that as the wilderness is destroyed, wild species like bats are forced out to forage for food increasingly in human centers. Just at the same time as human populations are also encroaching on them, encroaching onto wilderness. And these wild species, carry diseases that had so far just remained in the forests or had only rarely infected humans, you know, never enough to cause a pandemic or an epidemic. But now this migrating wildlife comes into more frequent contact with large human populations, sometimes via a third species like, like pangolins. So sneezes or droppings from these animals like bats to other animals, which humans handle more often like pigs, camels, as with the MERS outbreak about a decade ago, or pangolins as with COVID-19. So what's the relevance of metabolic rift here? Well, it's 
the cost cutting, the profit seeking, the livelihood displacing pressures of capitalism show up in the destruction of the wilderness, the increasing encroachment of meat markets into wilderness adjacent areas, the dense densely packed meat markets where lots of species are displayed side by side in very stressed conditions where several different viruses can infect a single host and mutate into something entirely new. So all of these pressures are kind of there because of how markets are being shaped and how we're encroaching on wildernesses. I think it's, it's also worth emphasizing, um, again, because how mainstream media has been discussing this stuff, that while in this case, the virus comes from an exotic meat, the pangolin, that that really isn't the problem. So since the 90s, several deadly strains of bird flu and swine flu have developed and spread usually from industrial farms of chick chickens and pigs, including in North America, Europe, as well as China. And there, again, it's very similar pressures. It's the crowding of animals into the feedlots under conditions that run down their immune systems. The genetic monoculture of these populations takes away the natural diversity, which reduces the prevalence of diseases. And all these things are done for the sake of profit. And it's well understood, it has been understood for a few decades that this increases the rate of infection, but that's not a concern if your main concern is profits. Um, the shortening of lifespans of these animals because farmers try to raise, you know, try to minimize the time between birth and slaughter. So that kind of hyper life cycle has acted as a natural selection pressure for the most contagious pathogens, right? So all these cost-cutting imperatives and profit-raising imperatives have created a kind of hotbox situation for these sorts of outbreaks. Mm. Which epidemiologists, of course, have been talking about for a long time, and the fact that it's only really just a question of when, if not if, a pandemic like this will come from somewhere, um, and through that sort of agricultural production and then just production in general. And again, the relationship that is um, severed in the way that Marx described through the metabolic rift between humans and nature and the ongoing, you know, many, many implications of that. might be thinking it's a common kind of critique of, of some of these ideas or at least a question that people have is that well surely capitalists themselves can see the destruction that's happening to the planet I mean there have been people who've denied climate change or whatever but really they can't be that stupid they do know that this destruction of nature is happening they do know that there are limits on the resources available in the natural world and at some point they will have to come up with a techn technological solution to make sure that the whole planet is not completely um, sort of destroyed. Uh, so, you know, why would we argue that that can't happen, I guess, through the current um, economic system and the social relations of capitalism? Why, what would Marx maybe say about that idea? Well, the reason things are produced or consumed or turned to waste in an, in an environmentally destructive way is very often because it's profitable to organize the economy that way, right? So that's the starting point. 
for some products, government regulations to force capitalists to produce better can have an effect, but that will inevitably make those producers less competitive relative to foreign rivals who don't face the same regulations. So the possibility of offshoring production mitigates a bit the power of government regulation. But really, those kinds of cases are a drop in the bucket in terms of the bigger picture. There are other commodities that aren't even susceptible to regulation in this way because they're so central to the profitability of, a, of an interlocking set of branches of industry throughout an entire economy or because they're central to the power of the state or the military. So oil is the obvious example. Um, but in a different way, the same is true of grain uh, or many mineral ores and construction materials that are important to the rapid infrastructure building of ro roads, ports, airports, cities, which are all used by powerful states to reorganize their economy every couple of decades, to move around their populations, to try to reorder the global flow of commodities to their advantage, to make them more competitive. Um, it's, it's important to keep in mind this kind of reorganizing of the economy, there's the use of these major materials, mineral ores, grain, oil, these aren't so much to meet biological needs of humans. They are to meet the competitive needs of nation states. And because of that, it's very unlikely that they can be changed to be ecologically sustainable within a, a world system of continued competition, right? Because it's the mere fact that it's a competitive system pushes against trying to dismantle these things which are the basis of your competitive power. Um, another aspect of this is lots of countries with little industrial development can't compete in the world economy in terms of industrial products. So they have to import them. And the only way they can pay for them is by cutting down their forests for timber or cut them down to, you know, make room for arable land so that foreign capital can grow crops there and then take them off to richer customers abroad. Um, so all that kind of stuff can't change unless there is cooperation rather than competition. Uh, you know, competition and a quid pro quo where the industrially advanced regions say, we will only give you the basic industrial products necessary for survival if you give us, you know, cut down your forests, right? Mm. So, I mean, really it would take a fundamental change in the whole um, way that production is organized in society to even be able to start to think about addressing um, the environmental catastrophe that, you know, and the social relations and the conditions of people's lives that mean that we can be in a situation like today with this global pandemic, um, you know, with the, all, all of the death and destruction that's going on. Um, and I think that element of competition is really important because people sort of think of it as, uh, um, you know, like that capitalists have choices that they could make and only, if only we could convince them morally somehow that they're making bad choices, that actually they could make a better choice to use renewables instead of oil and, 
that if only they knew more about it, that they would be convinced. But the problem is that in the cycle of production in capitalism, that element of competition means that if you don't, um, if you don't exploit your workers enough, if you don't exploit the environment enough, if you don't compete um, and win against your competitors, then your business, your reason for being a capitalist disappears. So it's sort of built into the system, um, both the, the need for people to work in whatever exploitative way uh, of themselves and of the world around them, because otherwise you can't survive, and also the need for bosses and business owners to compete with each other basically means that you have to break that cycle in order to start to address um, that metabolic rift in terms of our relationship with the environment. So what does that process then look like or what does that change look like and how, you know, how could that rift be mended? Yeah, I mean, just before I get to that, I think you're right to emphasize what you said. And partly we see how it's played out in the last, say, 10 years when climate change, environmental destruction has been more a part of political consciousness than ever before, right? Everybody's talking about it. Yet the past 10 years have also been the time since the global financial crash where competition between nation states has been heightened because of the crash and because of the repercussions since then. So we've seen even though the information is out there and it's just incontrovertible now, the ruling classes are not changing their ways because competition is more intense, specifically for that reason. You know, North America is building new pipelines. It's like, you know, four or five times the amount of pipelines that it had before. China's building new ports and new roads. Brazil's cutting down the Amazon, all in the time when it's become clearer than ever that we need to stop doing those things. Um, okay, so how do we get out of this? I think you're right to also emphasize that it has to be some kind of fundamental shift. In my view, it's best to see it as the solution has to be political and not technical. So the technical changes to labor processes are, of course, necessary, but they can't happen to any adequate extent within a system of competition between capitals and nation states. So the kind of change needed is for workers to own and run the means of production. Why does that help? Well, if we own and run the means of production, we get to dispose of its products. The products aren't taken away from us by bosses or by the state, which then use the product to compete against their rivals. We get to decide what we want to produce with our labor and machines. And since the decision isn't settled by the imperatives of earning enough profit to entice investors, we can, for the first time in centuries, base the decision simply on whether a particular kind of product is needed, whether the way we produce it is sustainable, because we don't have to think about investors. The ruling classes can detach themselves from, say, the hazardous conditions of work or the environmental destruction, because they can hide away in their executives' offices or inhabit a manicured environment of bottled alpine water or air-conditioned rooms or country houses. We workers have to suffer the work conditions. We have to live in the environment that we create. So we can't separate ourselves off from that. We can't put it out of our minds for the sake of profits. So we have an interest in changing our labor processes to take our consequences into account. And this is, in a sense, 
reversing the alienation of labor that went on when the peasantry was deprived of its land. It's trying to repair that kind of a rift. Mm. And the issue isn't, to put it, to put things in terms of a technical issue is to suppose that we're just producing the same things, but better. But fundamentally, we also have to change what we produce and to change who is served by our immensely productive machines and infrastructure. So we have enough grain to feed everyone in the world in a nourishing way. But the only way to do that is by distributing grain according to need, not according to whether they make profits. Uh, we need to preserve forests and marine ecosystems. But the only way to do it is uh, if vast populations in the industrially underdeveloped countries can have their demands for industrial goods met without needing to plunder you know, their forests and their seashores. And the only hope of getting those industrial goods to these uh, poorer regions is if the industrial workers in the advanced areas are the ones deciding what happens to their products, not the industrialist bosses. Um, who are obviously not going to start giving away stuff to the needy just because, you know, that's not going to end them profits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating discussion. And I think, you know, go going back to Marx and going back to this idea of the metabolic rift and trying to understand the, as we said right at the beginning, the kind of totality of how the relationship that we have with nature as part of nature as human beings is absolutely fundamentally affected by the social relations we have, the economic relations we have, and the way that a society is organized. And that the only way that you can change that or repair that is to change those fundamental social and economic relations. So um, thank you so much for coming on Red Flag Radio again. And I just wanted to plug a live stream forum that is happening on Sunday, the 26th of April, um, 7 p.m. on climate change and capitalism for more discussion along these lines uh, and on how socialism can save the planet. And that's what we've basically been hopefully leaning you towards that conclusion as well in this discussion um, on this episode. So, Sagar, thank you again for coming and discussing that with us. And um, we will speak to you next time on Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs> <laughs>